This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I welcome on Dr. Amy Prohl, who is one of my favorite researchers and microbiologists. Dr. Prohl was with us back in September of 2019 when she spoke about autoimmune disease, specifically the microbe components of autoimmune disease. In this episode, we are diving deeply into her area of specialty, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, otherwise known as ME-CFS. We speak today about the relationship between infections and pathogens and the onset of ME-CFS and the persistence of ME-CFS. This is a very relevant topic to the state of the world right now and understanding the machinery and the mechanisms of how viruses change our body to persist and survive and the cost of that relationship to the, the host, the human. We'll learn about how the viruses find a way to take over certain machinery in our body, such as mitochondria. We'll learn how these viruses set up shop in certain tissues that make them hard to detect. This is a very important topic to understand for both patients suffering from this very debilitating condition and clinicians who are trying to figure out how to treat it. A lot of people who are dealing with ME-CFS are left with no options in treatment. Luckily, thanks to this research that we're learning about, we understand ways to help patients. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And we join the interview in session. Thanks again for tuning in. If you do like this podcast and you find it valuable, please share it with your friends, press the like button and subscribe to our channel so we can continue to thrive as a podcast. Thank you so much and enjoy this week's episode. Dr. Prowell, welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. It's so great to have you back with us. Hi, Adam. Thanks. It is great to be back. Yeah, so the last episode you were on with us, we spoke about the pathobionts and their connection to autoimmune disease, and it was a very uh, interesting, informative, and, and popular episode. A lot of people really tuned into it and learned about these connections between pathobionts and autoimmunity. And uh, it's great to be back together today. Um, we're going to speak about myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'd love to just catch up with what you've been up to for the last couple of years since it's been a couple of years since we spoke. Sure. Yeah. I mean, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS, is actually the condition that I've studied for the longest period of time. And it's, uh, you know, I'm immensely fascinated by the study of this condition. 
So glad to talk. <laughs> so you, when you left off, you were in California working in research. Um, and since you've moved to the East Coast and working in Boston, um, what what have you kind of been up to with um, the transition there? Right. So I moved to Boston a little over a year and a half now. And part of the move was because I became uh, friends with a neuroscientist named Mike Van Elziger, who works at Harvard. And part of why I reached out to him is he wrote a couple years ago now a fascinating paper on uh, the potential for different pathogens to infect the vagus nerve, which is a really central nerve in the human body in uh, ME-CFS, the condition we're talking about today. And I thought it was, it's a hypothesis piece. He was saying this, this nerve, the vagus nerve, like if it, if the signaling of that nerve is dysregulated, it can lead to a lot of the symptoms that patients with this diagnosis have. And if it's infected, that could be why. And I think it's a great paper. And so I reached out to him and said, you know, can we talk? And we really got along. And what, what's interesting is, you know, his, he's a neuroscientist, so he's bringing in the, the brain. This, the, this MECFS really impacts the central nervous system in all kinds. It's a, it's a neuroinflammatory condition. And so, you know, we kind of pulled our, our different backgrounds into, you know, trying to think about how to best study um, this condition. And then we were also friends with a, a geneticist who, who studies human genes um, named Chris Phobes, who actually works in the Seattle area. And I had been put in touch with Chris by a different functional, functional medicine doctor, and he already does personalized uh, genomics. And it was helpful because the human genome, uh, you know, your human genes matter in any condition. Um, they're kind of like the human genes you have set you up for how the environment and pathogens can affect you. And so we brought him into the core team, too, so that we could really have a broad base of understanding coming from these different areas and see how we could best unite that into understanding the condition. And so we we decided to form a new nonprofit organization called Polybio Research Foundation with the goal of doing that and then also um, conceptualizing together studies that try to identify and better understand root cause drivers of MECFS. Um, mm -hmm. You know, really what's happening, um, the, the base root cause drivers. And so to do that, we conceptualized a couple large collaborative research projects and we each brought in our colleagues into those projects. So Mike's brought some, some of the best neuroimaging researchers in the world into our imaging components. I brought, you know, I'm honored to work with some of the best microbiology and virology teams that we're bringing into the infectious side of this. We have a lot of the, you know, human genetics elements. And so we're a group that's, you know, kind of bringing teams together with really important skill sets to, you know, study these, these root cause drivers. And that's, that's what I spend my days doing now is working on these research projects, conceptualizing them and, you know, trying to make them happen. That's so great. It sounds like an exciting team that you put, that you're, you're working with. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when we, before we started recording, you know, we talked about how kind of your work right now is really central to a lot of what people are thinking with the COVID-19 virus and kind of your understanding of these mechanisms dates way back, um, you know, from, you know, before this became kind of a forefront. So I, I think it's it's really great that, you know, sort of you, you've been thinking in this realm for a long time and studying it and researching. I would love to start off with um, just a discussion about 
MECFS, kind of some definitions and maybe also for the listeners to clarify, you know, how, how fibromyalgia is connected to this definition? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, you know, MECFS is a diagnosis that's made largely on the basis of symptoms. So patients, you know, come to a doctor and they, you know, describe a lot of the most common symptoms in MECFS are, you know, definitely a feeling of profound and debilitating fatigue, but also the symptoms go vastly beyond that. That's why a lot of patients don't like the name chronic fatigue syndrome. That's why a lot of patients do prefer the myalgic encephalomyelitis name because chronic fatigue syndrome makes it sound like you're just tired. Whereas the, the, the symptoms that people experience are, are incredibly debilitating. So they also have, you know, often widespread pain and cognitive impairment, um, you know, that, that can result in memory loss and difficulty concentrating. And a central symptom is what's called post-exertional malaise, which is an absolute inability to recover from exercise. And, and not just, you know, even, you know, we're talking for people who are very ill with MECFS. Just going to the bathroom or just standing up can cause, you know, the, the body to to go into a state where it actually feels worse because you try to exert yourself. And then also, you know, there's a lot of dysautonomia where, you know, the, the autonomic nervous system that's, con- you know, controlling blood pressure, you know, dizziness in simple terms where, you know, patients almost faint when they go to a standing position. It's very hard to, you know, maintain like blood pressure. So all kinds of... Um, Symptoms like that, right? And mm-hmm. and then you know a lot of patients with MECFS who get the MECFS diagnosis also have fibromyalgia. It's a it's a very common comorbidity, and I, fibromyalgia goes. It, some of the symptoms are are similar. I mean, in fibromyalgia, those patients tend to have you know the the pain, the body pain, is kind of like the the part that can be the most profound, with a lot of like neuropathy being involved. So you know, patients with both an MECFS diagnosis and a fibromyalgia a diagnosis often have what's called small fiber neuropathy, which means that the the peripheral nerves or the smaller nerves that like innervate, you know, they're not the central ones in the core of your body, but the ones on the sides through your legs through that go through like those parts of your body. Are, are damaged or are, are broken down. And in fact, you can do a, a punch biopsy where you take a little chunk of tissue, very little a t- tissue and nerves from these patients and the, mm-hmm. the nerve fibers are, are damaged, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I personally don't look at fibromyalgia and MECFS as two separate conditions that we have to study uh, and even treat totally separately. I think they both have elements of the same, um, you know, central root cause drivers contributing to them. Um, and so that's, you know, and, and the same actually goes for, you know, for example, like if, if you had get enough symptoms of dizziness and, and stuff with, with an MECFS, you'll also be given, for example, a POTS or a postural orthostatic, you know, uh, whatever. I'm going to butcher that acronym, POTS, the diagnosis where, you know, right. you're you have problems with that dysautonomia, but like, again, like the reason that a lot of these, these, you know, names that we give to these symptoms overlap so much is because there are very likely similar, you know, root cause drivers, including infections, including, you know, exposures and, and problems and problems with the microbiome and, and problems with, you know, organism, uh, you know, balance in the human body. So, 
So what we try to do is we try to, you know, sometimes with these find common themes um, in these diagnoses and, and study those. And what we're really interested in, in with fibromyalgia and, and part of MECFS is better understanding that that small fiber neuropathy, the, sure. the pro- what, what's going on with those nerves. Yeah. So it sounds like it's kind of like a continuum um, yes. of clustered conditions that, you know, and I think people often spend years trying to get the proper diagnosis. Um, one another, you know, kind of frustrating um, experience for patients to be bounced around from doctor to doctors and maybe finally end up, you know, with a rheumatologist or a neurologist that understands the, the granular details of these conditions that can kind of put it all together for them to have some context of what might be going on with their body. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you and I have come together about is the connection between pathogens and pathobionts and um, as a driver of, you know, some of the under, underlying pathophysiology. Would you be so kind to set us up for this discussion by just giving us a little bit of an overview of the role of pathogens and pathobionts in MECFS? Yeah, so infection is probably the one of the most important trends in in MECFS as an illness. Now, there's a number of different ways that pathogens or organisms in the human body can contribute to the MECFS disease process. And, you know, I first should probably go a little into just the history of this diagnosis for MECFS. Actually, there's been, you know, out- outbreaks, documented outbreaks of what, you know, became diagnosed as MECFS in different communities across the world that have happened over the past decades. So you have these instances in which people, you know, in one location get an infection and, you know, sometimes the infectious agent, the initiating infectious infectious agent has been uh, identified. For example, some outbreaks were tied to Coxsackie viruses, which are a kind of enterovirus and RNA virus. But in other cases, the technologies and tools that researchers or scientists had at those times to be able to find what the infecting, you know, kind of initiating pathogen was for people was were not good enough to be able to either identify it or there are, of course, many challenges even today with finding pathogens in a person who's infected because most of the pathogens, the main pathogens that contribute to the MECFS disease process are not easily identified in the blood. That is mm-hmm. one of the most important things to understand about pathogens in MECFS is the herpes viruses are some of the big players in MECFS cases. The enteroviruses, those RNA viruses I mentioned that are, you know, in, in simple terms, polio-like viruses are also big players in MECFS cases. And in both, you know, and, and other similar pathogens, in all those cases, those viruses are what is called neurotrophic. So that means that by definition, they infect nerves mm-hmm. so and the central nervous system. And so sometimes they might be in the blood or antibodies created in response to their presence might be in the blood. But it's very rare that those pathogens themselves are there. So that's led to some confusion with the MECFS disease process and infection because there are some research teams that look only in the blood for these pathogens. And Mm. when they don't find them, they say, oh, well, viral infection must not matter in these patients. And that is not 
the correct conclusion. The correct conclusion to me is to say, we need to look for these viruses if we're going to find them in the areas in which they would be expected to be, which would be the central nervous system and nerves. So Mm -hmm. that's one consideration. And the second is that anytime a person gets an infection, let's say you did get an enterovirus infection and that exacerbates your ME-CFS symptoms, you get that diagnosis. It doesn't mean that that virus has to be acting alone. So all of us are inhabited by extensive, that's what we talked about a little bit on the last podcast, extensive ecosystems of organisms that live in and on us. In fact, most of our human you know, body sites are not sterile. They contain interacting communities of bacteria, fungi, and even viruses, and even types of viruses called bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria. So these just really robust ecosystems of organisms. And in in simple terms, under conditions of health, I mean, we all have these. An Olympic athlete is, you know, has organisms in there, you know, most body sites, and, and so do people who are sick. And people who are healthy, the key is that those ecosystems are usually in a state of balance. But what can happen in, in many different uh, chronic conditions is that those organisms collectively move towards a state of imbalance. And that imbalance can drive many different chronic symptoms in, in many different ways, to be honest. And what happens is that that shift, collective shift towards imbalance, it usually involves organisms called pathobionts, which are organisms that can be, you know, they can behave when the immune system is especially in good shape when you know the person is not under conditions of stress and the immune system is surveilling the body you know they can be kept kind of in check in simple terms but if there are problems the immune system becomes dysregulated the person undergoes episodes of stress other things tax the person those organisms can change their activity they can change the genes that they express to act in new ways and create proteins and products that allow them to act more in a way that hurts you rather than a way that, you know, is, is, is conducive to a, a sort of symbiotic organism. And those organisms tend to start signaling and create, for example, proteins and molecules that signal to their neighbors to move collectively towards a state of imbalance that can, you know, sometimes called dysbiosis that can cause a lot of chronic symptoms. And, you know, one of the main drivers of dysbiosis can be a new infection. So for example, if, you know, a person gets um, a new herpes virus infection, let's say, let's, or they're infected with, you know, let's say just an enterovirus or a herpes virus, those, you know, major viruses, all major viruses have tactics by which they subvert the immune system to better survive. Mm -hmm. So they create proteins that knock down parts of the immune response. They mute immune cell responses. It makes sense. That's what allows them to, you know, stick around and cause disease. So in doing that, when they kind of tone down the immune response, that allows other organisms and pathobionts in other communities that the person might already have to in and of themselves move towards a state of imbalance. So in patients with these conditions, it's really important to understand 
that the result, the end symptoms don't have to come from just one pathogen. They might come from a mix of certain what I'll call dominant pathogens, like the herpes viruses, the enteroviruses, other viruses along those lines, and then also the flow-on effects that those pathogens can have due to their ability to suppress the immune response and allow other organisms to collectively move along with them to a state where they where chronic symptoms can occur. Wow, that was really well explained. Thank you. I So one of the things I just want to make sure I understand is there's almost like a um, collaboration between the primary infection that might persist in nerve tissue or in other tissues that are not necessarily readable by a blood uh, standard blood test. And then there's these co-infections that come along for the ride. Yes, that can definitely probably is probably a, a key trend in many of these cases. And okay, that's so you... one of the trends. Oh, sorry. That's like actually a, a challenge for the research community because there are still a lot of rules in microbiology and virology and chronic disease that need to, we need to reevaluate them. And one of them is still the idea that if a pathogen or an infectious agent contributes to a chronic condition, that there should be one pathogen. So if, for example, a lot of people think that if ME-CFS is an infectious disease, then there needs to be the ME-CFS pathogen right? Mm -hmm. That every patient with that diagnosis should have sort of almost like an easy test that identifies the pathogen. And I think that that isn't the case. Different people acquire or have different infections and those pathogens can do similar things to nerves or to tissue or to mitochondria in a way that can cause similar sets of symptoms. And when they also bring in the organisms in microbiome communities and, and also allow those organisms to collectively become problematic in and of themselves, the ultimate disease process results from a mix of contributions from different infectious agents, probably in different cases. Got it. And you, in your uh, Proel Marshall paper, um, 2016, you mentioned a great way to look at this um, as far as what the presence of this kind of collaboration and co-infections do to the immune system. You called it sort of like a kudzavine. Can you kind of go into that? I like that uh, analogy. Yeah. So what happens, you know, I actually, I think coined the name successive infection to talk about. And again, this is our, my model for how MECFS develops, but it's supported a lot of functional practitioners feel that the model does speak to a lot of what they see in the clinic, which is that let's say you have one uh, infection, a herpes virus infection in a person who, who gets an ME-CFS diagnosis. That pathogen, the herpes virus, will hold down the immune response in order to better survive in tissue or nerves. And because it does that, if you're exposed to another pathogen, a second infection, it's easier for that second pathogen to also be able to infect you and probably stick around and cause, you know, other symptoms in and of itself, right? And so, you know, these different hits can sort of support each other, each one taking the immune system down a step and making it easier for the next insult to become a bigger problem. And those insults that can contribute to these cases don't always have to be an infection. They can also be exposures. For example, let's say 
you first have a herpes virus infection. That herpes virus infects, for example, the vagus nerve, that important nerve that, that connects a lot of the body to the brain. Now, you might have symptoms resulting from that, but then you might be exposed to mold. And maybe the mold also debilitates your immune system. That then could allow the herpes virus that infected a nerve to spread even more, right? So these different exposures, which don't have to be always just infection, but just things that compromise the immune system. So for example, a person could have an infection and then they could be in an accident. And the stress from the injury and the accident could also debilitate them in a way that can add into these different insults that finally result in symptoms that can be diagnosed as a condition like ME-CFS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost uh, it's a it's an opportunity to kind of hijack a weakness in the immune system, right? In those moments when other insults are are in play. Yes, exactly. And part of what our my early research looked at was just the the ability of some of the pathogens implicated in the ME-CFS disease process to dysregulate the activity of this key receptor that's at the heart of the human immune response called the VDR nuclear receptor. And that receptor, it, it's in every human cell and it controls, it expresses these important parts of the immune system that help combat pathogens. And so what, for example, Epstein-Barr virus, that's one of the herpes viruses that can either become initiate some cases of ME-CFS or become a player in some of these cases. Well, Epstein-Barr virus creates a protein that can bind into that human VDR receptor that's important for the immune response and change its activity so that it no longer expresses those important immune components the way it was before. And now that immune response is debilitated. So the next time you get exposed to a different pathogen, your immune system is no longer able to fight it as well because the Epstein-Barr virus took it down. So you can see how that, and then the next pathogen you get could also impact that same receptor or something similar. And then you get these different hits that are all hitting the immune system down and all yeah. accumulating. Thank you. You term you have a term in your paper called immune exhaustion when that right. kind of keeps happening when the immune system kind of loses its its bump to fight, right? Yes. After a while, and you know, I think I see this, you know, I talk to a lot of patients and a lot of clinicians that treat these patients. Sometimes in MECFS cases in the earlier years, people feel more, you know, actually like their symptoms fluctuate more, they crash more, they go through a lot of more ups and downs. That may be due to the fact that the immune system is still trying to fight back as much as it can against the pathogens or insults or exposures that are adding into the cases. Mm -hmm. But over time, if the immune system, if the pathogens win and they keep knocking down the immune system and the immune system gets really debilitated, it almost can't fight back. So there you get a stalemate where, you know, the immune system is is trying to push back, but it's no longer succeeding. And under conditions of this stalemate, it is like you mentioned a little like, and I've, I've said this in my paper, like kudzu vine growing over a field of plants in that you have, you know, a, a situation in which the person has these pathogens and, and problems in them, um, that need to be addressed, but there's, they've kind of reached this point of exhaustion where 
it's percolating a little bit. Like if, if you were just, you know, a field smothered in kudzu vine, it, it can go on that way. It's just very compromised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting that you mentioned and talk so much about the VDR receptor. That's the vitamin D receptor um, uh, gene, or I guess there's also um, a lot of people carry polymorphisms to this receptor. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just, I'm learning that it's just so important in the immune system across the board um, that, you know, a combination of a polymorphism, which is kind of a change in one of the the sequencings of the, the, the coding for that receptor, it might, the function might be reduced even without an infection. And then didn't you, you mentioned something about like Epstein-Barr virus when you were speaking earlier. So it, it's pretty significant and how it affects and downregulates that receptor. Um, oh yeah, it really downregulates the receptor. And then because the receptor is so important for the immune response, then it just downregulates the immune response. The, the, you know, the first line of defense, the innate immune response, the first line of defense against infection. And the interesting thing is Borrelia, um, Brugdorferi, the causative agent of Lyme disease. Also, one study found it can debil- you know, decrease activity of the VDR nuclear receptor. And wow. so can cytomegalovirus. And so there's these different, you know, so can fungi, for example, Aspergillus fumigatus, which is a really, really disabling fungal pathogen, can also create a protein that downregulates the VDR activity. And so there's a couple of things that come from that. One is that if you have a problem with VDR signaling in immune activity, you don't, different people could have that problem, even though they have different infections. You see like, so someone with Borrelia could have a problem with that system. Someone with a herpes virus infection, like Epstein-Barr could. So again, that's this trend that I think is really important to understand is that sometimes different pathogens can do something similar to a person that results in, you know, an immune deficiency or a problem. And what that means is that not every patient has to have the exact same pathogen or mix of pathogens to have um, the disease. Different things, mm-hmm. you know, they can have a, a kind of collective um, individualized mixes um, that are causing similar problems. Mm-hmm. So the um, when you're we're talking about like the assessment and evaluation of MECFS. I mean, you had mentioned a few things, but these are not commonly done in a clinical practice, such as there's usually sort of a common cytokine profile um, that you mentioned um, in the blood. There's also um, LPS elevation, lipopolysaccharide elevation. You also mentioned something about the blood microbiome um, of these patients. And, you know, we're not really able to order most of these tests in clinical settings. Um, So you're saying the diagnosis is usually based on symptoms. Um, Are you seeing that there's any trends towards running any commercial tests for helping kind of understand what's going on? Right. That's a tough answer because, you know, in, in the current medical system right now, just when a person goes to see a a regular doctor, they're not even tested for any form of infection. So if you, you know, this, what we're talking about with infectious contributions to MECFS, it's not that the the research community that informs sort of like the, you know, regular medical perception of these patients is very muddy. One of the big problems is first, there's this 
psychiatric, there's like a, the psychiatric community tried to take over this diagnosis. And this mm-hmm. has been a long time running. So it, it, it muddles just the, the, the ability to just look at, look at it for what it is. So you always, you know, have a debate, you know, there's, there's a certain number of, of researchers who just think these people have, you know, are, are psychosomatically ill, you know, that they're manifesting these symptoms. It's ridiculous, you know, I'm, but you have that narrative going on. And then you do also, one of the problems that the, the scientific research community has is, like I said, they're still, you know, debating whether the pathogens, you know, and I, I think it's strange, but the pathogens that people get that are, you know, that they, infections that they get, whether they matter. And that comes down to the fact that, like I said, they're not able to be easily identified in blood or in body fluids. And so what often happens is a research team will look in the blood, say, oh, we don't see any obvious viruses here. So viruses not, must not actually matter in patients with ME-CFS. Mm-hmm. And they start studying. They're like, it must be a breakdown of the human genome, or it must be some rare, strange form of autoimmunity. And what I personally think and what we're trying to work on at our nonprofit Polybio is to say, well, these pathogens that become are part of people's cases, they're in they persist in tissue and nerve. And so we're trying to get tissue and nerve samples from patients so that we can better look for pathogens and where they would be expected to be. And in fact, we're we're not even close to the first team to have done this. Actually, in the 1990s and 2000s, the, the year 2000, those decades actually, in my opinion, had some of the best MECFS research teams who were working on these patients. Mm-hmm. And for example, there was a researcher, John Chia, who I'm still friends with, who's in California. And he, uh, he had the right idea. He didn't look in patient blood. He got tissue from patients with an MECFS diagnosis. For example, he did gut, like he did an endoscopy to be able to get a tissue sample from the guts of patients mm-hmm. with MECFS. And in that tissue, and again, remember, these viruses persist in tissue. He found, he's found enteroviruses, those RNA viruses, and their proteins in a high number of tissues from patients with an ME-CFS diagnosis. Mm. And other research teams around the same time also found enteroviruses in their proteins in skeletal muscle samples from patients oh. with an ME-CFS diagnosis. And there have been two small, I mean, single brain autopsies of patients with ME-CFS. And both, actually, there's been three, but two that looked for viruses. And both of those looked for enterovirus, and they found the same enteroviruses and their proteins in the brains of the patients. And even in one patient in the brainstem region, which is a central region of signaling uh, in the brain, who, if, if it's uh, dysfunctional, can lead to the very uh, ME-CFS clusters of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of evidence that if you actually get into the tissue and the nerves of patients, you can find these pathogens. But since it's hard to do and it's not easy, the part of the narrative out there is sometimes like, oh, they don't matter. And so the actual, you know, research community right now is very divided on what's even happening with these patients. And so mm-hmm. if you see a, you know, regular doctor and you have an ME-CFS diagnosis, they mostly just give you palliative medicine. 
Now, what the functional community like you uh, doesn't do that. They actually start to say, you know, to test patients and consider that the exposures and infections that have affected them matter, right? So in that sense, like they do, you know, it's not perfect, but they, you know, for what it's worth, they at least start with, you know, antibody testing, you know, IgG, IgA to just see if there could be some immune evidence that people, you know, do or did not have, you know, some pathogens um, in, in their case. And, you know, to a point, they also will do a good amount of, you know, treatment that can just be based off what I sometimes call therapeutic probe, right? Where you give a person a herpes virus antiviral, and if you if they respond, um, and sometimes patients actually feel a little bit worse for a bit when they take an antiviral because the the antiviral will sort of allow the immune system to recognize the virus again, and that mm-hmm. could lead to like in a Herxheimer type effect where mm-hmm. the immune system starts to sort of fight the virus again. So, you know, the but if you get kind of like, if the patient feels a bit either worse or better on an antiviral, you can sort of start to say like, wow, well, we can't literally get a nerve out of you um, because you're alive. We can't take out your nerves, but we can use your response to the herpes virus antivirals to say that there probably, you know, could be um, a virus in your nerves. And in, in, in cases where patients are treated um, with antivirals and with different, you know, uh, antimicrobial compounds, a lot of patients make true progress. So, mm-hmm. and another thing that, you know, goes back to what I was describing before is that those, those dominant pathogens, like the herpes viruses or enteroviruses, because they hold down the immune system, the microbiome, including the organisms in the gut, can shift collectively to also become imbalanced, Right. Mm-hmm. So there are doctors that I know that just do, you know, your standard kind of gut health protocol to patients mm-hmm. with an ME/CFS diagnosis, uh, you know, like trying to strengthen the gut lining, then, you know, trying to knock down pathogenic organisms, repopulate with better beneficial organisms. And patients might not get totally better, but they do often improve a little on some of those gut approaches, right? And part of that may be that the gut dysbiosis might not be the, the central part of the disease process. But anytime that you improve gut imbalance or dysbiosis, it takes a load off the immune system. The immune system, yeah. when the gut is imbalanced, it ha- it's trying to, you know, it's surveilling, it's trying to figure out what's wrong, what, who's doing what. It's a weight. I mean, there's a lot of organisms in the gut that the, the immune system is totally caught up in all, in all that imbalance. So mm-hmm. if you stabilize that and you bring those organisms back into a better place, it frees the immune system up to be able to, you know, better deal with the, the herpes viruses, with the other pathogens that can be the big players, right? So yes. you kind of hack in from different angles on these cases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And let, let's, uh, let's travel into the kind of internal world a little bit because uh, internal medicine world, I should say, um, you've written about mitochondrial function and how um, there's some disassembly by these persistent infections. And, you know, so when that happens, uh, the, I guess the term is called like leaky or dysfunctional mitochondria, when there's sort of a um, in a uh, ineffective production of energy from the cells and ATP and um, the currency of energy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because 
I mean, we, as, as a clinician, we, in, we always try to repair mitochondria in patients with MECFS. But I think it'd be helpful for both the patients and the clinicians to understand, like, why is that? Yes. And that's one of the topics I'm particularly interested in these days. And I wrote a recent paper on with my one of my colleagues, because one of the most important trends to understand about pathogens is that all viruses, all of them, must modulate the activity of mitochondria to survive. So viruses can't survive on their own. They have to infect and hijack a human cell in order to be able to replicate and in order to gain substrates for them to be able to replicate. So what they do is they infect your cell and then they pull substrates out of the mitochondria in that cell and they use them for their own survival and replication. Now, like, you know, I think everyone might remember, you know, if you took biology in high school, like the Krebs cycle, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the, the cycle in mitochondria, every mitochondria is going through these different steps in order to make ATP, which is a source of energy. And that's what mitochondria export. And that's what's used to fuel the body is this ATP it's producing. So what viruses do is they pull from that energy cycle that makes ATP And they pull substrates like lipids or fats that are part of how that pathway creates ATP. They pull them out and they use them for their own backbone, their own uh, genome, their own like their own ability structure. Right. So Mm -hmm. that is how they they replicate how they be. If a virus is going to go on, it has to make a new copy of itself, you see, and it needs to build that new copy of itself. And it's using your substrates from your mitochondria to do that. So by definition, any infected cell will have a different ATP and energy and mitochondrial output than a non-infected cell every single time. So Amazing. yeah, it's, and it's, it's, like it's the, not uh, just viruses, bacteria do it too. They're like the ultimate couch surfer that never leaves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They just hijack is the, is the best word. I, they, they just hijack you. They take what they want from you. They use what they need to replicate and you get with left with what's behind. And so that is obviously going to be less ATP, less energy and a dysregulated mitochondrial function because they're, they're warping it for their benefit. So if you have, you know, and this is the thing is again, the research communities that study patients with MECFS and even patients with most conditions they're really segmented. So you have one team, for example, that's studying Epstein-Barr virus and a totally separate team that's studying mitochondria. And what you know needs to happen more, and it, it happens in some cases, is that those teams work together more and say, how does the Epstein-Barr virus hijack mitochondria? I mean, let's, mm-hmm. let's unify these trends. We can see that patients with an MECFS diagnosis have infections and they have mitochondrial dysfunction. Are they connected? Yes. I mean, I think it doesn't have to be account for all the mitochondrial dysfunction, but if you have an ongoing infection, it will be affecting the ability of your mitochondria to function correctly. And so, yeah, with these patients, I do think that it makes sense to use 
a mix of approaches that try to control the pathogen or kill the pathogen to the extent that that's possible, and also to boost the ability of mitochondria to function while you're trying to make that happen, you know, to sort of start to give the patient what they're not getting because they're hijacked. Yeah, and I I just want to reassure people who are listening to this that if this seems like overwhelming and daunting, that there are plenty of clinicians out there that um, work in this terrain of establishing um, how to reduce viral load and then also how to boost the immune system and repair mitochondria. It's something that's, um, for someone who's sort of uh, trained in this kind of functional medicine approaches, um, something that there's there's a lot of tools out there. I don't want people just to feel like you know we're we're not doing things and that are actionable yet. So, um, well, I I know we've used up a lot of our time, but this has been really just an outstanding talk um, and just really allowed for me and I'm sure many of our listeners to wrap our head around this component of MECFS and also you know it's just so timely with like all the news about post viral syndrome um that we're thinking about this and discussing this cuz it's going to likely um be a topic that many people are going to need to address as we learn more about the long term effects of COVID-19 um i just want any kind of parting thoughts that you would like to share with us and then just if you can leave us with um uh some kind of ways for people to follow you and information about some of the work you're doing. And um, of course, I'll post some of your articles in our show notes. Sure. Um, I think that, you know, long COVID now, uh, unfortunately, and it's expected, unfortunately, certain patients who get, you know, the COVID-19 disease are developing a wide range of chronic symptoms. And these cases are very similar to MECFS cases. So many of the trends I just talked about um, pertain probably to long COVID cases. Um, the way I see it, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19 disease um, can just be one of the hits um, that we're talking about. And you know, when you start to look at these conditions as possibly involving multiple infectious hits that sort of support each other by keeping the immune response down, exposures being involved, um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, unfortunately, is a new pathogen that can simply become one of those players. So I'm not, and I'm not saying there can't be unique trends that are affecting these long COVID patients. But one thing I hope is that there are some people who think we need to start sort of from scratch with this long COVID diagnosis. And I don't think that's the case. It could be as simple as the fact that someone who got COVID-19 um, had Borrelia already, but the Borrelia was kind of contained and hadn't spread very much. But then when COVID dysregulates the immune response, the Borrelia is able to emerge and infect new body sites and, and it becomes more of a, a Lyme case. <laughs> I mean, like, so, or, you know, there's, there's almost like certainly, I also don't think there's one long COVID. I don't think everyone with long COVID has one problem. It's going to be the same, you know, as some of these diagnoses where, the different exposures and things that, that fit into these cases may be a little different, but, but patients, you know, get similar chronic symptoms. And last, I would say that I think it's really important for MECFS and long COVID cases for researchers to consider the effects of these infections on the brainstem. It's a region of the brain that controls 
what's called the sickness behavior response. So when you're sick, if there's an infection in any body site, if there's just ongoing inflammation, the vagus nerve, that nerve I mentioned before, it's this big nerve that goes, you know, branches throughout the whole body. And it conveys a signal to the brainstem region to say something's wrong here. There's an infection or inflammation. And the brainstem returns with what this, it's the feeling, the sickness feeling that makes you feel fluey and, and exhausted. It's, it's a way of saying like, rest, you're infected, you're sick, your brain is telling you you're sick. So that response, you know, via vagus nerve and brainstem really is probably a problematic in many of these cases. And so what our research teams are looking at a lot is we're doing neuroimaging studies to better understand first if the brainstem is signaling is disrupted in patients with ME-CFS and also long COVID. And then we're looking at contributions from the vagus nerve and whether infection of that nerve can contribute to brainstem signaling. And then we're also looking at cases in which the brainstem can, can become compressed because a person's connective tissue isn't in good shape. And, you know, the, like there, so there's a lot of different ways that that region of the brain that's in, the, the thing with brainstem is that's also um, an important part of the brain that controls the autonomic tone that, you know, is dysregulated in dysautonomia. So, for example, if you get dizzy when you're standing up or you have trouble fainting, the brainstem is also controlling that response. So you mm -hmm. can see how that part of the brain, that signaling is key in these cases. And I hope that that's one of the trends that moves forward with the study of ME-CFS and long COVID. That's outstanding, you know, because it ties again ties together all this kind of autonomic symptoms that um, are so puzzling to patients and clinicians and understanding how to work with the vagus nerve and measure the vagus nerve is just, it's, it's such an important um, part of the future of medicine. Yes. Um, so um, as far as getting in touch with you or contacting you or any kind of um, if you're recruiting research um, subjects, what, what's, um, what are some ways people can follow you? So, um, you know, our PolyBio website has a contact us button, and that's the best place to write if you want to be a study subject. Currently, we're only recruiting study subjects in Boston. So if you're in Boston, uh, let us know for sure. Um, sometimes what we're doing is we're getting samples from Boston. We send them to teams who might not be in Boston, but that's where our main source of collection. Um, and then also, um, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is microminded2. PolyBio Research Foundation also has its own uh, Twitter. I think it's at PolyBioRF. Um, and those would probably be the best ways to contact me. Excellent. Well, Dr. Prowal, thank you again. It's, it's always a delight to speak with you. I just feel um, listening to you makes me feel just stronger and comp more confident and hopeful as a clinician providing care for um, people with chronic illness. So thanks for all your dedication to research. And, um, you know, we look forward to learning from you down the road. Great, Adam. Thanks for having me. It's great to speak with you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. 
So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that. Forward the, the episode to them, and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.